Welcome to Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recordomics Consulting. We've helped over 75 biotech, life science, and venture capital firms strategize, hire, and retain thousands of employees to scale companies that bring life-saving drugs to patients. We speak with those at the forefront of growing biotechs to learn their tactics on building these companies from the ground floor to the C-suite. We're your host, Karina and Allison. All right, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us today. We always start off with the same question, which is, what did you want to be when you were seven? What are you now? And how did you get there? Well, it's uh, nice to be on the podcast, Karina and Allison. Thank you so much for your invitation. Appreciate that. It's funny, you know, I don't remember whom I wanted to be when I was seven, but uh, there are three jobs which I aspired to grow up to hold when I was younger before I ended up on my current situation. I was uh, quite an avid book reader when I was a kid, and I read all these wonderful stories based around archaeology and planetology. When I was probably around 12 years old, these were my top choices. Digging in the ground somewhere, I still sort of carry that hobby, which got enhanced when my mom and I we took a around 100-mile hiking trip through the Ural Mountains, which has, it's like a preserve, but instead of animals, it's a neurological preserve. So you can find some very interesting specimens there, like uh, garnets just laying on the road in front of you. It's also a very interesting geographical spot because Urals, uh, they separate the Europe and Asia. And there's a place there, you go on this mountain road, uh, there is a forest on the one end, the mountains on the other end, and there's a line which says Europe, Asia. And you can like stand one leg in one direction and one in another. And that kind of prompted me to really wanted to become grow up a geologist. But in the end, uh, you know, as, as we grow up and interests change and some other priorities in life set in besides thinking about a career, I just decided to take the easiest route out. Both my parents are chemo or were chemists and they passed away, unfortunately, but um, chemistry was something which was very easy for me as a kid. I got kicked out of the last year of high school from chemistry because of my unwanted, unwanted comments, the teacher. And uh, so I went to Moscow State and uh, in Moscow, the higher education has been different. You select your specialty up front and it's school is just like elementary, middle, high college, graduate school is six days a week. And you take everything basically. I have to start like a dozen types of chemistries, but on top of that, philosophy, sociology, economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which I found to be obviously boring, but Still, you know, you have to educate yourself. But when I graduated, I got a master's in chemistry. I was recognized and I was invited to come to States on full scholarship for graduate school, UMass Amherst. And the only catch was that I had to switch to molecular biology as my specialty, which was a little bit challenging because first discovery I made when I came to States, I did not understand half of what people are saying, despite learning English since I was eight. And the uh, second is that when I first came to the class, of the half I understand from the cell biology course, I understand only 20% because I never took cell biology before in my life in the graduate course. But so it was kind of an evolution. But in the big scheme of events, I kind of stuck with the RNA as a topic of interest, which I started uh, investigating in 91, first as a chemist and as a biologist. And then I did postdoctoral training at ISIS Pharmaceuticals, which is the number one antisense company, RNA targeting company, been around since 89. And their idea that the postdoctoral training from collagen to psychology of RNA. And that kind of, you know, sealed my fate in a way. I did a lot of different 
roles within the drug discovery, development, translational research path, both from chemical, biological, and psychological perspectives. And I worked on other programs outside RNA, but it was kind of a unifying theme for me in a way and led to the creation of the company, uh, which I co-found, Primera Therapeutics. That is amazing. And that trip you took with your mom sounds so beautiful and just incredible. What an amazing experience to get to go and do that. Can you tell us a little bit about, I want to make sure I'm saying it right. Is it Primera? Primera. Even its name itself has an interesting sort of roots. Uh, we found it, co-founded it in 2013. And uh, the reason for that was that the company I worked in the past, Silene Pharmaceuticals, was sold. And at the time, uh, we had uh, three programs. So one was in Pol-1 transcription, one was a CK2 kinase, and both of those were sold. But we also had a PIM kinase program, which kind of landed abundant. And my partner, Dr. Mustafa Kadash, who was a head of medicinal chemistry at Silene, he wanted to do a PIM inhibitor. And that hence, he came up with the name Pimera. And I said, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to do Pol-1. And because, as I said, I just found this earning much more interesting to work with. And this is technology, which I personally, with his help, discovered and co-developed with Professor Hannon, who is currently a vice dean at the Australian National University of Canberra. And it was my passion. And I strongly believe that there is a sort of positive impact we can produce working in this brand. So we kept the name from the original idea, but the company was refocused on the Paul Watch description and the division of ribosomal RNA synthesis. And so what's the vision that sort of drives this company? What is your mission? Well, so a lot of discoveries in discoveries in drug development discovery process are quite serendipitous. I'm sure you've heard the story about Viagra, right? The blood pressure. And uh, then there is a thalamide, which was originally for morning sickness, which caused some horrible birth defects. But in the end, started the new revolution in imides, linolidomide, Omimindavite, et cetera, et cetera, which are helping tens of thousands of patients with myeloma. In our case, this Paul one idea was born out of the serendipitous discovery. When I was fired by Sunday Pharmaceuticals, they said they had this compound, CX3543, Corfloxin, which was originally designed to target the DNA structure within the promoter of MIC oncogen and suppress this transcription. And they were ready to go in the clinic. Everything was peachy. The only problem that did not inhibit me. So I was hard to find out what does it do. And I serendipitously observed Dracosfluorescent that accumulates in midvioli cells. And that's the place for ribosome biogenesis. That's where the place the ribosome DNA synthesis occurs. So I had an idea, maybe that's how it works. And it did, it did. That gave us an idea of just starting a program, looking at the POL1 inhibitors independent of their mechanism. And the second, the first true generation, because porfluxin had some general effects as well. Whole one inhibitor was born in Narulax 461, which was sold to some mobile sciences and being currently developed in several clinical trials for oncology. As a first generation drug, it had its own liabilities. It was an IV, it had a very long half life. There's some other issues which we wanted to address. And we found Pimer, we knew exactly what we needed to do in terms of what needs to be improved and et cetera. And we basically found Pimer to address any potential liabilities on that and come up with some other new ideas. Basically, we were able to raise some money, not a lot, but because we were lean, mean machine, so to speak, relied heavily on consultants, steroids, wrote a lot of IOUs in the beginning, 
And that's kind of one of the advices I can give to people who are starting their own company. Find people who will trust you enough to give you credit because in the beginning, there are certain things which you wouldn't even think about, such as lawyer fees, for example, all right up front for all your corporate means, at least, that require significant spending. And in our case, we, our first raise was basically the three of us. There's another gentleman who was, but unfortunately, he left the company pretty early. We just put for $10,000 each. And that was our seed round, $30,000, which for some business type of businesses is a lot of money, but not one trying to discover and develop. Wow. So this was all getting started in June of 2013. I think, is that about the right timeline? Yes, we were technically started in April, but all the paperwork were filed with state of Delaware. So that's the official birthday. So I definitely want to touch on this leveraging consultants and who you bring at the early stages. But just to set the landscape now, it's been 10 years. What does the company look like now? How many employees do you have? Are you still leveraging some fractional talent? Can you take us through what that sort of looks like? Absolutely. So the company never had more than three full-time employees. That was kind of our strength in a way, because second being the fact that used to be Janssen Labs and now J Labs were so very kind to us and kept us for many years beyond the original expectations. And right now, company has two people full-time. We are in the phase one in oncology and that we extensively leveraged our contacts of with both academic and medical community in Australia and currently is running clinical trial at their number one cancer center, their Peter McCallum Cancer Center in Melbourne. There is a, another benefit of doing a clinical development in Australia is that the government there gives you a significant amount of rebate every dollar you spend. So despite Pimera being a small operation, technically we have three offices. San Diego, Houston, and Melbourne. So there is a Pimera Australia. So I find this so fascinating because we hear a lot, we work with in companies in sort of a venture environment a lot. And so it's very much the traditional fundraise. They go for their seed, their ABC. You've just done things a little differently. And that is so fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about the alternative? So the one thing you mentioned already is, you know, doing your clinical trials in Australia. That is such an interesting perspective. We actually have not heard anybody talking about other countries for clinical trials on the show. What other things can you say, you know, if you need to be lean and mean and scrappy, how else have you done that? It's good to have on your team a person who knows how to bargain. And that's my, my partner. He, is, he was born with that talent. He allowed us to really adhere to our budget, which was pretty slim. But the thing there is one of the main routes to success in drug discovery is you need to eliminate the bad things first. And uh, we knew pretty well what's not going to play, what's going to play because we had a significant while. We had a nine months to think before the physical wet work, so to speak, began to plan on what exactly will be the screening cascade, what the molecules we're going to look at, what kind of indications we'll be thinking about. Bringing on board uh, collaborators with whom we work in the past, who did, and that's another, I think, one of the most crucially contributing factors was our collaboration with uh, Professor Hannon, who was started at the uh, Peter McCallum Cancer Center and now is at University of Australia, National Australian University. His lab also specialized in having interest in Boana and the Repsom biogenesis, had an access to amazing amount of models, which otherwise we would not be able to secure. And that sort of 
even nowadays, despite the successes of CRISPRs in the world, there's still limited number of transgenic mice, which can be good representative model of the disease, in particular for oncology, because typically oncology is multigenic disease, not monogenic and genetic disease. So having him personally interested in for helping, potentially help the patient, but also for advancement of science was a very beneficial sort of symbiotic arrangement where allowed us to succeed. Yeah, so academic collaboration, certainly a big one. We definitely see most founders trying to do a lot of the science in-house. So that's a really neat strategy to work with collaborators who have maybe some funding, some graduate students. They're working through things that are, you know, in parallel. Well, exactly. I mean, even if you do find transgenic models, and those, uh, there are some, the study will cost you around quarter million dollars. So one study. So that's something which can really add up eventually on your budget. Wow. So budgetary constraints aside, when you work with someone who's maybe not an academic partner, but a CRO or a consultant, what's really important to you when you're vetting different companies to work with and partner with? So I think the developed sort of as a rule of thumb, the agreement that we will only employ CROs for things which do not require tinkering. If it's a pretty straightforward, like toxicology study, just follow the protocol, collect all these tissues, run all these amounts, provide us the data, we will look at it. But for something which is more innovative or more requires, you know, trying different things, that's unfortunately CROs are usually not. But again, we use capitalized heavily on the globalization, work a lot with China, who there are some very good vendors there you can find, work for chemistries as well as the pharmacology, toxicology, pharmacokinetic studies, which were done half, well, not half, most in China, but we're also working with Australia because they're also working for some, and that's, that's another thing. A lot of bigger universities have so-called core groups where with whom you can also collaborate at much more reasonable prices than with the CROs. But again, sometimes they'll ask you, like, I, we, I, we used to collaborate with core here at San Diego house at Silene, and they're kind of have to go there yourself, but there are instances where they will actually do the whole work for you. As far as managing those CROs, do you have somebody on your team who specializes in that? Does everyone sort of do that ad hoc and how much management is there? It really depends on the study. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've partnered, I would kind of split that he's what's all the chemistry side, mine was all the rest, college, psychology, PK, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that also having, for example, for toxicology, we were also blessed to find really good expert consulting with also the San Diego native, Dr. Grace Furman. And she was, because at any CROs, there are employees who are better and there are employees who are not fans to it. Not naming any names in particular, but having somebody on your team who already had experience working with a particular CRO or talking to your, not necessarily even having on the team, but knowing somebody who can give you advice in terms of, for example, what study director should you ask? Is there any potential pitfall which you should look be upfront that this CRO is known for? This can be very, very helpful. Dennis, I have to ask on a totally different note. Could you tell us a little bit about like what your day-to-day -day is like? I mean, you're managing communication and contracts and talking to people all over the world. And I imagine you either work 24-7 or you have really figured out a great way to manage all of the different pieces. I'm still human and I need to sleep and 
right now because I, I left as a full-time employee of Primera. I don't, I'm not as well there right now as much, but when I still was there, the biggest challenge was in a way that we worked across the globe. So sometimes, you know, the meetings have to be taken, not in the middle of the night, later, later in the evening or early, early in the morning. So 7 a.m. was not completely unheard of for some And that's just part of the deal. But again, in our case, yes, there you have to sort of always maintain contact with both servers and actually your collaborators as well, because that's one thing the academics can get a little bit sometimes default because something which is maybe very interesting from scientific perspective does not necessarily add anything to the drug development. Then that's sort of where you need to start communicating with them and making sure that goals are aligned. But a lot of time is actually just reading because there's so much an explosion of new information every day that staying on top of it does require reading quite a few hours a day, pretty much. Usually when I wake up, I'll open and start looking for what or announcements already released goes, for example, if I wake up at six, that's already not there. Do you have any AI tools that you use to help you gather information or help triage that process? Well, my brain. Not A, but I at least. <laughs> you have eye tools. <laughs> you love that. <laughs> yeah, I'm exploring different tools to the information has always been a challenge. You know, there's so much to consume to stay on top. Well, I mean, in my mind, uh, between PubMed, Google, and Google Patents, you can find all information you need. It just the issue is you need to know what question to ask. All of them, the information is out there. That's the challenging part is know what you're looking for. And works for me so far. I'm not going to knock on AI and I'm not going to say never. I mean, and for a lot of things, especially right now in the field of RNA, for part of discovery, looking at the different regulatory elements throughout the sequences or establishing the connection for signal qualified polymorphism to potential pathology, it cannot be done by what I without A. So that's where this comes very handy. And that's what we use in the work of. For searches, still do it the old fashioned way. What excites you? What are you seeing in the news right now or coming through that you're like, oh, wow, that's super cool and I can't wait to see this get developed? This is the funniest thing. It's kind of philosophical in a way, but evolution is driven by negative stimuli. It has to be tough in order for you to evolve. Otherwise, what's the point? And while COVID was terrible in many ways, it did push significantly humankind up the evolutionary ladder in my mind, because look how many things changed. And that's the discovery of, or other development of uh, mRNA vaccines for COVID really boosted the field, which people worked for three years around, as I said, I only started Stan Crookstein founded in 1989, but there was no enthusiasm because I think that there was no recognition of the potential, you know, the antibodies were stealing everything. Obviously, great result for me oncology, et cetera. But RNA was sort of this orphan child, which was usually neglected until 2020. At this stage, although there were other companies, all this, all Island, et cetera. But since then, there has been an explosion of different modalities. And I think that the sort of there's three main paths, whether the therapeutics are currently advancing in. And one is discovery of different modalities, starting with antisense and sRNA, mRNA, and now there is circular RNA, self-replicating circular RNAs, there is non-coding RNA-based therapeutics, there is an alternative which they're trying to make a tRNA for a nonsense suppression, 
and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's very exciting that the amount of sort of possibilities is opening up. Second, and that's where the AI sort of stands in, comes in, is the use of computational methods, which allow you to analyze the data which has been produced. Because by now, there is already so much genomics, neuronomics data, which just sits there from human sequencing, which needs to be properly analyzed to be understood of how certain changes, genetic, epigenetic, et cetera, are connected to pathology and which of them are causative, which are correlative, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where computers come really, really handy. And third, it's a little bit on the slower pace, but there's some interesting nuance in there is it's chemistry. It's chemistry which improves your drugs, especially in uh, the biggest challenge of ultimate therapeutics, pretty much, which is delivery, delivery, delivery. All right. Now the liver is covered after a traditional government. The CNS and I, because you can inject directly in those spaces, maybe skin to a degree, but this is definitely not everything. There's new work going on in muscle, in lung, in kidneys. Regulus, for example, work for, have some very interesting knowledge for the kidney system disease. I think that we live in a wonderful time for the expansion of the field. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of computational chemistry roles being posted suddenly, which I feel like, so I'm an RNA biochemist by training. Moderna was my first client, and this was back when they were working on that RNA vaccine idea, and everyone was started to talk about how they were maybe a unicorn that wasn't actually going to do anything but make vaccines, and there was like, like that was a derogatory thing, and then, you know, COVID hit. There was a serious interest in oncology in the beginning as well. Definitely. But the thing that they were able to gain traction on and monetize, or that looked like it was going to be monetized, was the RNA vaccine unit. Well, $100 million from United States government did not hurt, I assume. No, I'm sure it did not. But I just remember that there was sort of a souring around that RNA field. Yes. And it's specifically in oncology, simply because the delivery could not be achieved. When I was at uh, ISIS, now Ionis, they had a program, their leading program compound called Tinitac, which is a protein kinase C inhibitor. And uh, they put it in lung cancer trial and it failed two phase threes, which was heavy toll on the company. One of the potential reasons in my mind is that they simply don't go to the tumors in the immediate concentration. There are a lot of new strategies which are currently being developed for specifically tumor targeting. I'm really looking forward to see what can be achieve. Yeah, same. That's really exciting. So what have you loved and what have you hated about being a founder? Give us the top 5% and the bottom 5%. Well, I think that when you start the company, if you're not in the position where, you know, you can retire already, it's going to hurt. There's a significant financial component where, you know, you're missing, for example, for first 18 months, of Pimera, it was me and my business partner who put money in it, not vice versa. Only after we got our initial, not even first, a second initial investment, were we able to pay a just token salary for ourselves. But the most exciting thing is where you understand that you can do it. The idea is working and that you do know enough and you have people working with who can help you enough to make this idea into reality and to go into the clinic and hopefully help patients in need. 
The mission. Yeah, I think that mission is what we hear a lot. The hope that we can help humanity and see that come to fruition. I love that. I was speaking to someone the other day about it's a little bit of the elephant in the room, right? Like, how far do you take something before you just say, like, this isn't going to work? And, you know, I'm curious, did you have like a set time frame to where you were like, if our initial idea doesn't work, we pivot? And what was that discussion like? Because we do talk to a lot of founders and the question always becomes, how long do you chase the dream before you think it's either a pivot or it's just not going to happen right now? Well, in our case, we also had a benefit of the first jam being already in the clinic and clinical data being released publicly while we're doing all that. And there were some promising results there. We had access to exactly the same models we tested the first jam drug of Continuing Collaboration in Australia. So we had a pretty, pretty good idea if we can do as well as the first gen or better, right? Our drug is oral, which is a benefit instead of IV injections. And if we can't, we can. So the progress continued. We saw activity pretty early in the models, which was superior to the first gen. We saw that tolerability is clearly much better and that gave us confidence. And then I'm not saying that there are problems which you, at the first sight of trouble, you should abandon ship. No. But uh, like, for example, if you're going into already clinical trial and you have problems scaling up, I wouldn't abandon the program. I don't know. I'll start working on how to scale up. But if your science idea does not work in the beginning or in, even in the middle, like, for example, with, sometimes you can pivot. It happened to me in my career once we had, when we discovered about the pull one, and when we switched the company selling pharmaceuticals, whose CEO, uh, Bill Rice, he was a very separate idea and actually helped me made it happen. And we switched to two different programs looking for pull one inhibitors. And we chose very different paths. Uh, one was a shotgun where you don't care what your molecular target is. You have a functional screen and you put the library of compounds through it. And then you take kits from that and go from there. The uh, approach was selected target from the literature and then work towards molecules inhibiting that target and then connected to your pharmacological response. So I was in charge of discovery of the first program and my colleague, Dr. Speaky J. Adam was in charge of the second. And when in the end, the two compounds came out, so 5461 and 5461, we had no idea how it worked in the beginning, but we knew that it's a selective and potent inhibitor of pull one. And with 4945, we knew that it's a very selective inhibitor of CK2 and it did it pretty well. It had no impact. So at this stage, we had already a molecule, which was a lot of invested in, but which did not work through the proposed mechanism. And instead of dropping it again, we pivoted. We start looking, putting in charge of translational research project, which start looking in other potential applications of this drug. I'm not saying you have to throw everything away. You have to be very, not try to make CK2 inhibitors inhibit pull one, because apparently that's not going to happen. But see what else can you do. And we were lucky working with that. And now we discovered several potential combinations, like CK2, for example, regulates DNA damage repair. And that's what mm -hmm. it's in the clinic right now in combination with two DNA damaging agents. So phase two, it just, you have to be ready to follow the date. Disperse of your original notions if they're not working out. You have to be adaptable. Yes, adaptable. You strike me as somebody who's very business-minded, and I think that probably is a result, and like you said, not having an academic career or a lengthy academic career, both business-minded and also very tenacious. So to have followed something through 
on a shoestring budget for as long as you did to push it into the clinic. This is, that's a lot of tenacity. It's, it's a lot. Can you tell the other founders that might be listening, you know, kind of a little bit about that journey and what did keep you going when things got a little bit tough? It's very important to understand that starting your own venture is an investment. You finally, people could give you money and that's the gift of money, but you are investing your time. Years, primarily. I stayed full-time with Primera for seven years, still with a clinic, basically. And just be ready for that. Don't look at the times where you could have been making money. Yes, there's hopefully pay out down the road and be much more sweeter because you will know that all of it is your work. And just chase your dreams, I guess. It is a long process to bring a drug all the way through. <laughs> Yes, I mean, we had this unfortunate snafu, which delayed us past a couple of years, nothing to do with us, but five years of work basically was put out from the idea into the clinic. And that is only sort of considered to be on the shorter side because it can take up to 10 years sometimes. Although nowadays, a lot of new programs, I had a bit consulting. I talked to the, everybody wants to be in the clinic in three years. That's the new rule. We'll see how, how it will work. I mean, and for some therapeutic cities, obviously easier, especially for oligos, you know, because chemistry there, I mean, you already, if you know your sequence, you know what your sequence of your compounds can be. And when you don't have any chemical start and some, some small molecule problems, that can take a lot of time. So what are you doing now? You said that you're not with Pimera full-time. So are you doing some consulting? Are you kind of just taking a breather? Well, I... In a way, I do a bit of consulting, uh, not a lot, but I'm just thinking about what's new. What do you want to be doing? I don't want to abandon my passion just yet. I want to stay in the RNA field. There's a lot of, as I mentioned, there are a lot of new interesting modalities coming around. So I'm sort of looking what would be the best place to apply myself to. If you're talking about doing some consulting, you know, what is the consulting model that you're thinking about and what types of companies are you working with? So there are different opportunities have CDA signs up, unfortunately I can't talk to the names, but there are some actually I recommend there are certain CROs who, what they do is they connect clients to the specialists and working with them can, can be quite beneficial. They serve as a bridge between the need and the provider. It's not a full time, but there are sometimes where they need a specific specialist advice. That's where I can come handy. That's really good advice, though, to share out with people who maybe don't know that that's an avenue that they could look at and connect through. Maybe there's some opportunity there for other people to weigh in and offer some expertise. Of course, is more, and that's another benefit from COVID. The globalization and remote work, so to speak, hybrid work, has become a norm. It just makes more sense if you have a question to ask somebody who you don't need 23 other hours out of the day. I think about at the beginning, we were talking about your model where you have folks spread out all over the world. You're working with CROs in China. You're doing your clinical trials in Australia. That is still a little bit novel, but I bet if somebody were to listen to this podcast a few years from now, they would think, well, of course, everybody's doing that. That's just normal. So I do think we're moving in that direction because I hear more and more people, of course, the CROs in China, we have been using you know, a lot of CROs in China for years. But clinical trials or teams in other countries that are doing meaningful research, that is somewhat new. It is in a way, but then again, this is sort of depending what your goal is for oncology in a way that the beauty of it, or rather the, the horror of it, sorry, is that there are patients everywhere. And this is something which is in my mind also very important. And uh, when you go into clinical development is to find this doctor 
who believes in your program, who can be a champion, who can help you go recruit other investigators, who can help you work, see with the patients to make sure that they understand what technology can do for them and what can, cannot. And we were lucky to find that such guys, a gentleman in Australia. How does that affect the approval process uh, or patents in the U.S.? I am so glad you asked that because I was just thinking as the non-scientist, I was like, I'm going to take one for all of the people out there who are operations people and who have no idea how this would work. I figured that was standard knowledge. So yes, please tell us that. I'm so curious. So it doesn't impact your patent because for anything which is really worth your while, you're always doing global submission and we cover our star patents, cover Australia, obviously, many other countries, no major markets. And in terms of the approval for FDA, there are some studies which you are able to sort of transfer in a way. So finishing from certain countries to certain countries. Finishing phase one in Australia would have allowed us to do maybe abbreviated phase one or maybe even jump straight to phase two here in the US. Or the plan was, for example, to finish to proof concept in phase two and then just give it to people with much more resources to do a broader phase three confirmatory trial. Because this is something which I think is everybody needs to do what they're good at. Biotech is really good at the discovery clinical with early clinical development. That's where sort of not so good, not for my wonderful colleagues who work there in discovery at preclinical development. Majority of approved drugs, they're all in license, small but. So that's where I would say that another benefit working with Australia in particular is that it's internationally recognized. There are trials or rather the standard matches a rigor required from FDA and EMA. Now, did you know that when you were kind of starting to work with Australia or was it one of those things where the opportunity presented itself because of the network? So then you were like, oh, great, look at all this other great stuff that also kind of correlates and will actually transfer into the U.S. Like, did you kind of build that knowledge out as you were deep in the process or was Australia a target prior knowing that? Well, actually, it was kind of, again, quite serendipitous, and that's thanks to Professor Grant McCorfer, who is number one uh, melanoma specialist in Australia, which is number one country with melanoma. Myself, Bill Rice, the CEO of uh, Silene, and Professor Cannon wrote a grant for Australian government to cover phase one for the first generation capital. We got around a million dollars, and in the process of obtaining this grant and setting it up, I kind of <laughs> learned quite a lot about the intricacies of clinical development in Australia. So I guess that's by the time we already found Pymera, I was already aware of all of that. We learn new things every day by talking to people and by going down these paths. But I imagine that, you know, when you're actually in the thick of it, sometimes you have to kind of learn what other countries do, what other clinical trials, scaffolds there are. Tell me about your thoughts around a company at this stage, because I see this a lot where it's phase one trials, and then the hope is to license it, to your point, to maybe a pharma company to finish the development. What are your thoughts around that? We still need to finish our escalation phase. We have to make sure we properly understand the pharmacokinetic properties of the compound. We clearly already saw that, I think we disclosed that, we're in, uh, presenting at conference in San Francisco in January, the adjacent to JP Morgan, but new modalities. One of the issues with the first gen molecule, which came out later, uh, already when we were in the clinic, is that it had some side effects. One of them was their so-called pulmoplantar erythrodesesthesia, which is also known as a foot and hand disease, where you start developing blisters. 
significant blistering on the extremities occurs in certain DNA damaging it. And what we discovered later, oh, not, oh, actually, Professor Hannon and some other people, is that it had some other odd parts. And for us, this was something which we knew we would need to deal with. This was already been disclosed, and we made sure that our molecules are, for example, do not have that side effect, and that our toxicology profile in the humans is much more better. So, for example, we went already pretty high, and we still have not seen any dermatological effect. Now, that's fascinating. So, is that the end goal, do you think, to license this, or do you want to see this all the way through? Ideally, I think that all of us would prefer to license it, if not then phase one, then maybe mid phase two. Because as I say, the company was never set up to have a significant regulatory, et cetera, and medical and clinical staff. And the big farm is just, they have an opportunity to really spread their wings wide in the clinical development. You know, I've seen for certain programs, they'll do five trials in parallel, thousand patients each. So, and that obviously cannot be done by that. Definitely not. Some of our clients, increasingly, there's been a model, and I, I actually think, I wonder if we're going to see this change. But for a while, there was a model where you mentioned the sort of three-year target to clinic. That very much is the plan for many companies that are spinning out of some of the larger VCs. And they're putting into place in year one the folks that are going to be on those clinical, the regulatory side. And because it takes a long time to spin that up, it's not a simple, it's not like, okay, we're ready to go to trials, just hire the people. So much has to be done. The cash burn for that is incredible. Well, obviously, and Chimera, we don't have like a scene. At that stage of early development, you want somebody who is an MD, who is consultant, where we use consultant. And then you want somebody who's running your clinical operation. And that's pretty much it. In our case, we have also another part-time person who does it, clinical operations for us in Australia. That's where they're the trial. And in terms of the three years, I think it is reasonable if you have a lead in the beginning. But if you're starting from scratch, it can be more challenging. That's the other missing piece of that, is that those, these companies, they do have a strong lead when they're spun out of these VCs. It's typically that they've partnered deeply with a, an academic who's come in to be their founder. So yeah, it's a different model and it's a different mindset. And we see the gamut where we have smaller and leaner biotechs like yours that are very much bootstrapping this to some extent, getting funding you know, at the bright stages and then hoping that the outcome is a, a licensure because that really is a, a nice outcome. Yeah, it is. I mean, the hope that you're not only licensed, but also licensed the people who actually will make a genuine effort to continue the development of the compound. But one more thing, which I, I sort of, I a little bit touched them again, changing the direction uh, a little bit, is I want to give a huge shout to uh, Johnson & Johnson and the J-Labs. For us, this was extremely, one of the pillars which carried us through. And uh, right now, they're just opening one in Singapore. This is something which I would recommend strongly to any founder who wants to start smaller prints, does not have huge seed round because for very reasonable amount of money that J-Labs can for if of course you pass the their muster in terms of A, your science, it makes sense. B, John from Job has to have interest in the area where you work. And in that case, they provide you with equipment, which is going to cost you a lot of money up front. But on top of that, there is obviously 
sort of a, a little bit of medal recognition, the fact that you, you, know, you passed their BS detector, then they connect you to the venture from Johnson Johnson, as well as they actually connect you to the other investors. They have a, a VC hub, for example, in our San Diego facility, where investors just stop by and for the price of one visit, you can see like 30 companies if you want to. So, which I think is very, because this is the biggest challenge is it's not the science, it's not even the people, it's fundraising. I'm not lie. Especially if you don't have Nobel laureate, CEO, which already sold three or four companies. In our case, we didn't have either. No, that sounds great. JLab sounds really interesting. They will kick you out as soon as either you go to the clinic or you grow too big with haste. But there are other wonderful incubators and going with something like this can really help you instead of, you know, trying to start it in your own garage. No, that's really good advice. I am so interested in your answer to my favorite question, which is, what is your favorite book that you think everybody should read? Oof, that's a tough one. It's not, that's just funny. It's not one book, it's 13 books. You know, it's the funniest thing. When I was a kid, I read two, 300 pages a day because Soviet television didn't show much. So nowadays, unfortunately, I almost do not have time to read just a book. But uh, there is this wonderful, when I was younger, I really liked fantasy. And then, uh, of course, everybody heard about Tolkien. Uh, no, the one of those Tolkien, the other one is Game of Thrones. But there is another series which I found in the book level is just as fascinating, and that's Robert Jordan's Wood of Time. And unfortunately, they made a series out of which we completely botched the idea of the books. So I strongly recommend to read the books the way it's supposed to go. Yeah, I agree with that. It's really funny. I'm also a big fantasy person, and um, my husband and I have both read all of the books in Wheel of Time. And so we were really excited when the show came out, right? Of course. And it's very different and true to TV. They made it very racy, which it is not at all in the books. <laughs> so, but they've taken some liberties, we'll say. Yes, they have. Well, I've never read it. And so it's going on my reading list. So thank you both. Sounds like a great read. And so we are going to link your LinkedIn into our show notes, but where else can folks get in touch with you if they want to learn more? I think my LinkedIn page is the best. That's the first thing I check in the morning, not only for messages, but there's a lot of very useful information you can find everything, all the new things, which are, I, I would follow quite a few companies and quite a few leaders in our field. So between one of them or another, I managed to get everything in one place. Yeah, amazing. Well, we'll send people over there if they want to get in touch. Thank you so much. This was really informative. Yeah, Dad, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much, ladies. It's such a pleasure to chat with you again, Allison, Karina. Building Biotechs is brought to you by Recordomics Consulting. To find out more about Recordomics Consulting and how our fractional talent management consulting services are helping biotech and life sciences companies grow more efficiently and retain employees, visit www.recordomics.com. And then make sure to search for Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recordomics in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Recordomics Consulting, thanks for listening.